Concepts is uh, their constituents of mental content. I can't go into a detailed uh, explanation now about what what content is. It's just roughly a way of taking the world to be. And constituents just mean parts that together recombine in order to produce, or together combine in order to make a full uh, content that puts a condition on the world. So concepts can be put together to put conditions on the world, but concepts are special kinds of constituents. They're articulable, they can be expressed in language. They are recombinable arbitrarily, not just recombinable, all constituents are recombinable, but they're arbitrarily recombinable. They meet what's called the generality constraint. Um, they are rational, well, all content is to some extent rational, but they're rational in the sense that uh, a, a subject that deploys a concept is under a standing obligation to justify that deployment of the concept. They are deployable in that a subject can actually use concepts for their purposes of achieving their ends. They're not just content constituents that are foisted upon a subject. Um, the subject can actually take responsibility, must take responsibility for using them. Hence, this just need for justification. And I, as a side claim that may be distracted us a bit, um, but it is something that I think is important about the nature of concepts and the nature of content constituents that aren't concepts, is that if you, I don't, uh, yeah, well, I'll just make this claim. Because constituents that are concepts meet those four conditions, they, um, are a special case, interestingly special case. They are the constituents that are going to not just put a condition on the world, but and not just present the world as being a particular way, but present but presenting the world as being the world, as being a world independent of the subject, as being a more or less objective world. <clears throat> and I think until recently, the status quo, the, the orthodox view was that if you're going to give an intentional explanation, certainly if you're going to give a content-based explanation of any uh, 
psychological or cognitive phenomena, then you're going to have to use concepts. It's just, matter of fact, in a lot of the literature, you'll just see, uh, maybe even in the, the reading I gave you from Lawrence and Margolis, you'll see them just say, look, concepts just are the minimal constituents of content. They just, they just don't recognize the possibility that there might be constituents of content that aren't conceptual. Um, so they just the, the assumption is that if you're going to give a cognitive science explanation, you are somewhere going to rely on concepts. Uh, then what I did was uh, point out that there's well, I mentioned and I didn't get it into detail yet, uh, but I mentioned that there are some reasons to that you might question reasons for questioning whether or not concepts can do all the work we need them to do. And I got to the first issue, the finest of grain of experience, but um, I'm going to go through some other issues now, uh, some phenomena that suggest that we need something other than concepts. Right, so I have changed uh, these points a little bit, but I won't get to all of them. Uh, and then what I'm going to do is say that there's an alternative that we can use. Um, we can, if we employ a notion of non-conceptual content, then we can avoid those limitations, overcome those problems. And however, if we do so, then um, we incur, um, there are some new problems, new challenges, that uh, different challenges. But I think these challenges can be uh, responded to. So it's not just replacing one problematic notion with another problematic notion, replacing the concept with the proto-concept. The, it's the, there are challenges, but the newer challenges that face proto-concepts are ones that can be solved. Okay. And the challenges, just brief, I probably won't get to this part of, we can talk about this later if you like, but just briefly, the challenges include the problem of specifying proto-concepts. It's not a problem. It's easy to specify conceptual contents, not so easy to specify non-conceptual contents. Uh, for those of you who weren't here, there's a problem. I have to press this forward button about 10 times every time I want it to go forward. So that's why the things, uh, there, there's pauses sometimes. There's a question of the relation between conceptual and non-conceptual content. So if you are, if, if one is advocating non-conceptual content in cognitive science, does that mean we get rid of the conceptual? There are no concepts. There are no, there is no conceptual content. We just replace, replace that notion with another notion or is it that there really are concepts and conceptual content, but there's also non-conceptual content? If so, then what's the relation between them? And if they're so different, if this is supposedly a different idea, um, how can um, these two things relate? Um, and uh, finally, uh, there's some more, that, those are more kind of conceptual problems with non-conceptual content. But then there are also uh, empirical problems too that, um, for instance, Andy Clark has raised about just facts about how we work that suggest that there might be problems uh, applying non-conceptual content to, uh, for instance, perception and action. Okay, so that's the overview. Uh, I, I think this is just a repeat of one of those slides. Right, it is. So now I, I went over, um, oops, that's the problem. I mentioned this problem with, with conceptual content, it seems it's difficult to give, do full justice, it seems, to the content of our perceptual experience if you only use concepts. It seems like the, the way the world 
is presented to me now, or the way the world seems to me now, or to you now, just by looking around, is much richer, more detailed, makes finer distinctions than you have concepts for, than is certainly than you have, uh, say, color terms for, the, the rich shades of color that you can experience vastly outstrip the color terms that you have. So it looks like uh, there are ways that you experience the world that are not articulable. The distinctions are not articulable by you, at least not linguistically. And yet that was one of the constraints um, for uh, one of the restrictions and one of, one of the uh, sources of power of the conceptual approach is that conceptual constituents are articulable. But it's also a limitation in that it's not going to be able to do justice to um, the richness of our experience. Um, so I already went over that one. But um, here's another problem for conceptual content. Uh, consider the Muller-Lyer illusion. Has anybody here not seen the Muller-Lyer illusion before? Okay, so you know, because you've seen this before, that despite appearances to the contrary, the line segment from here to here is the same length as the line segment from here to here. But you also can just look at it now, and it seems to you as if this line segment is longer than this line segment. At least it does to me. I hope it does to you. Now, that's interesting, because you all know about the Muller-Lyer illusion. So you all have, in a sense, maybe you have the belief that um, the line segments are the same length, because you've, told, you've been taught this. Maybe you've tried it yourself. Um, nevertheless, it seems to you as if the lines are of different length. Well, that's a problem for understanding the content of your perception in terms of concepts. Why? Because concepts, um, remember, have this rational constraint um, that uh, when you deploy a concept, you're understanding obligation to reflect on it and revise it in the, in the uh, light of evidence to the contrary. Um, and in particular, your, your, the, your understanding obligation to be consistent, to not believe or have contents um, take uh, not to have your uh, conceptual um, <laughs> ways of taking the world to be be consistent with each other. But what we find here from a kind of a phenomenological argument, we, we just observe our phenomenological states, we see that the content of your perception is not rationally revisable. Despite the fact that you know those line segments are the same length, you still experience them as being different lengths. And so there isn't this rational, the content of your perception is not um, un, un, like con conceptual content should, uh, is. It's not revised, uh, modified, updated in the light of your other conceptual contents. So it seems to be outside of your conceptual sphere, which is um, imposing a coherency consistency condition. So that's another. Um, uh, reason why conceptual content maybe can't do justice to our perception, the content of our perception. Okay. Um, a more theoretical rather than phenomenological uh, problem with conceptual content is, is that it seems like the best account that we have of what it is to possess a perceptual concept like is red or the concept red so I'm talking about conceptual content here. But even when we try to give an account of what is it for someone to have the concept 
red. Well, it's that they should be, if they, if they have the concept red, then they should <coughs> at, at least be disposed to apply this concept to certain cases and not to others, right? If somebody said, well, that's red and that's red, then and they tended to judge those things to be true, we would say they don't really have the concept red. But if somebody, uh, right, so somebody, ha to have the concept red, they have to, uh, you can get it wrong sometimes, but at least be in the right ballpark. They have to have a disposition to apply the concept red under certain conditions. Well, what are those conditions? Well, you might think it should be, they should have a disposition to apply the concept is red to things that are red. That's a good first start, but it's a bit too strong because it requires us to be infallible. There are cases where objects are not red, but they look red. And in that case, it would not impugn your possession of the concept red if you were disposed to say that it's red. So suppose there's a, um, uh, uh, let's say, a, a white book, but because of the light, pattern of light or whatever, we know that there are these uh, um, perceptual conditions in which uh, something that's white can actually look another color, could look red. Um, we wouldn't say that you don't have the concept red just because you would have a disposition to say the book is red or judge that the book is red in that condition. So the conditions under which you should be disposed to apply the concept red aren't the cases where the book actually is red. It's when what? Well, when the book seems to be red, when it looks red. Well, if you only have conceptual content available, that looks just circular, right? Um, what is it for a subject to possess the conceptual content red? Well, it's for them to apply it under certain conditions. Well, under what conditions? Well, when things look red. Um, if if the way the world looks to you can only have conceptual character, then this is going to be a circular way of setting up the conditions for um, what it setting up conditions for you possessing the concept um, red. So there's this problem in trying to ground a theory of perception and come up with a specification of the what's called the possession conditions for a, a, a perceptual concept, an observational concept like red. There are two camps. One camp says we need to ground this in something. And if it's going to be grounded, it looks like it can't be grounded in the conceptual because it's the conceptual that you're trying to give grounding for. So it needs to be grounded in something other than the conceptual, <coughs> the non-conceptual. People tried grounding it in, uh, remember, non-conceptual content is non-conceptual content. There's, it's important that it is also taking the world to be a particular way. In the past, people tried to ground the conceptual in the non-conceptual, but not content. They tried to ground it in sense data. Sense data are not content. They don't present the world to be any particular way. So those of you who've heard of sense data, um, I'm just letting you know how this relates to that. Um, so a foundationalist could say, we can ground it in something that's not contentful um, at all. So it's not conceptual, but it's not contentful either. That didn't work. That approach didn't work. Um, just take, take my word for it. Um, or we could try to ground it in something else. Well, something that's contentful, but we don't want to have circularity here, so it has to be non-conceptual and yet contentful. Another approach would be to have a circular uh, account of 
what it is to possess a concept and you just say, well, you just embrace the circularity here and say, well, I'm only going to allow myself to help myself to conceptual contents because I don't, I'm not aware of anything else. Uh, I don't have any notion of non-conceptual content available. So I'm just going to accept that I have a circular account of what it is for, for someone to possess a concept, say, red. I'm going to say that if they, they have the concept red, if they employ, employ it when the world looks red to them. Um, some people think that that circular account can be informative. I don't. I think that's a problem. So the conceptual approach um, is not going to be of use here, I think. It's going to yield only circular accounts of, uh, for instance, the possession of perceptual concepts. So, um, yeah, that's just a statement of the circularity. <clears throat> we talked about evolution a little bit yesterday. I think we ended yesterday's discussion uh, mentioning evolution and how certain um, less than symbolic modes of representation might suit an evolutionary story, story better than th this the symbolic level. <coughs> I'm not sure if I got that right, but um, what I'm going to say here fits with that, um, I think, pretty well. Um, this is another problem for a purely conceptual account. In general, if you want to give an evolutionary explanation of some trait, then you need to construct an ordered chain of traits in which, roughly, each preceding trait is a more primitive version of its successor. For instance, the eye. You can give an evolutionary explanation of the eye if you can find in the record early items um, that are earlier than uh, the current item. So this is a temporal sequence going from the past, phylogenetic past to the present. But, but in, in each case, it has to be that the earlier um, stage or item that you identify is a more primitive version of this. It can be seen as doing the, roughly the same thing as this or say having the same function as this, but just uh, <coughs> uh, have, either having a, a more primitive version of that function or um, realizing that function to a lesser degree. So that's, it's those constructions that give evolutionary explanations of their power. Otherwise, you just have a catastrophic uh, sudden appearance of a trait. And that might occur sometimes, but as the trait becomes more and more sophisticated, uh, a catastrophic explanation becomes less and less satisfactory. It becomes more like a coincidence. Yeah. But can we be sure that more complex and better adapted to the environment is the same thing. Did, did I say more complex? You said you can be sure that the predecessor is one with more primitive, the opposite isn't that, it's that the successor is more complex. No, by primitive I just mean uh, less less uh, able to fulfill that function, not as good at fulfilling the function. So your notion of primitive is actually less adapted to the environment? <coughs> no, it might be... What? Mm, yeah, it could be. I think in most cases we would say that this is better adapted to the environment than this one. But maybe there's a lot of uh, simultaneous uh, evolution going on here. So in its particular, um, not only environmental niche, but also with all the other thing, things that were true about that organism that, at that time, the organism that was like this might have been just as well adapted to its environment as the organism that's like this. But nevertheless, we can see this as a more primitive version of this. Primitive does not mean simple, though, does it? Um, 
Well, I just mean it in the sense that this is not as good an eye as this. Do you, if you believe that there's an intuitive sense in which this is sensitive to um, more um, frequencies, this can focus under a wider range of conditions, this can uh, be sensitive to uh, stimuli that are further away, um, this can be sensitive to stimuli under lower lighting conditions, I think there's a, a relatively uncontentious sense here in which there's an ordering here, and it isn't just a, a physiological ordering, it's an ordering of functional capability. So I don't getting really hung up on com more complex, I'll just say there's an ordering here, uh, and that ordering is all you need in order to, it's what you need, it's not all you need, it's, it's, you need that at least in order to give an evolutionary yeah, explanation. It would seem to me that something that is simpler could sometimes be better adapted to that's, the environment than something that is complex. That's fine. I don't, I don't, all I care about is whether or not you can, I think, if you're going to give an evolutionary explanation, you have to have this sequence here, and it might not be a sequence of less adapted to more adapted. All it is is a, it's a, it's a, a sequence from um, less able to fulfill this, fun this function to more able to fulfill this function. So I'm not saying that at this time this organism wasn't very well adapted, and now it is. Okay, it might have been very well adapted at that time, and now it's very well adapted at this time, but the point is we can construct a sequence of, uh, of these um, items and see how this can be seen as a more primitive version of that, and this is a more primitive version of that. No, I, I don't really understand what you mean by primitive, but let's skip it. <laughs> uh, do, do you remember what I said about um, how this is, uh, this will be able to be sensitive to more frequencies than this one. This one will be able to perhaps be um, able to detect a stimulus under lower lighting conditions than this one. This one might be sensitive to um, uh, be able to focus uh, under different, but more uh, wider range of conditions than this one. So, as as that's all. I don't I don't have to say that it's better adapted. All I have to do is say there's a there's a sequence. In which we can see this as being a more primitive version of that. I hope everyone, well, I think there's an intuitive sense in which this is a more primitive eye than this, and this is a more primitive eye than this, and this is a more primitive eye. It doesn't matter whether that means they're more adapted or less adapted. I'm just saying if you can find the sequence, you have to be able to find the sequence in order to give an evolutionary explanation. That's what Darwin did in the Galapagos, yeah, in right? So example, if he did, if he, if you can't, if you can't find this, then you can't give an evolutionary explanation. In this example, it looks like primitive means less. Okay. I'm starting by asking, and I'm and I call the question, you know, whether. I'm I'm just trying whatever works for yeah. you. If that if that works for you, then then. But it doesn't fine. work for me. That is the problem. All right. Okay. So you know, for me, there are two clear notions: there's simple, complex. You understand that? I could imagine that um, you could come up with an eye. Uh, you I, there might be special cases where you start out with something complex and it doesn't do a very good job, but you evolve this very elegant, simple structure, and it is uh, better exer than this thing was. So it isn't about simplicity versus complexity. It's about whether or not it performs the function better, that is, under wider range of conditions, wider range of stimuli, etc. And this one is a better one than this one, which, oh sorry, this one's a better one than this one, which is a better one than this one, which is a better one than that one. Doesn't mean that the organisms that had, that at this stage in the phylogenetic chain were less adapted to their environment than these organisms. No, it doesn't imply that. It just means there's a sequence in the phylogenetic history in which each member of the sequence is performs its function less well than uh, the the uh, one after it. 
So better functionality does not necessarily mean better adapted to the environment. No, because it's not the only thing. There are other things going on in, inside the organism uh, and in the organism's environment, such that a more primitive eye with a more primitive lung and more primitive heart and more primitive dietary needs and more primitive uh, con specifics that you're competing with and more primitive blah, 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 means that you're just as well adaptive as a thing that has the more complex or more sophisticated eye. But given all these other changes, like the fact that we develop brains or whatever, now we have to have a more complex eye to be as adapted as our ancestor was in their simple environment or their, their, their less demanding uh, niche. So it doesn't mean more adapted, 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 that we're better adapted than um, pre-hominids were. Okay. No, I understand. But this is not my area of expertise. I just think it doesn't matter about the details. The point is that if you're going to give an evolutionary explanation, you have to find a sequence. And the point is that with concepts, you don't find the sequence. Con with, uh, if you only think there's conceptual content, then uh, you, there is, there's only content that meets those four criteria, and that's it. There isn't a notion of meeting those criteria to a greater or lesser degree. In a sense, that's all the non-conceptualist is arguing for. All the non-conceptualist wants, at a minimum, maybe they want more, but at a minimum, they'll be, uh, you can say you're a non-conceptualist if you're just saying that there are contents that meet those constraints to a greater or lesser degree. Because that's something that the true conceptualists cannot acknowledge. They have to say, no, they're, they are, are, they're not kind of articulable, more or less, or they're not uh, um, arbitrarily recombinable, more or less. They are arbitrarily recombinable. They are articulable. So in a sense, the debate between the conceptualists and non-conceptualists is about um, whether you have hard constraints, and below those hard constraints, there is no such thing as content, or whether you think the notion of content gets a grip even before these hard constraints are met. So the conceptualist can't really give an evolutionary explanation of conceptual abilities because the conceptualist can't recognize um, a sequence, um, it's claimed, uh, cannot, uh, um, uh, cannot um, there, for them there is no notion of a, I'll say a more primitive concept um, exercise or a more <coughs> primitive concept use. Yeah. So concepts uh, are combinable, you would say it's compound concepts are more complex or Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, you could explain. Once you have some concepts in place, you could then explain maybe how uh, uh, you, uh, a subject or a species developed um, more complex concepts and more elaborated concepts, but you still have to assume that primitive fragment and you cannot give an evolutionary explanation for the primitive fragment. And that's why Fodor has this innateness problem. Um, but Anyway, and it's even worse than that because people usually just uh, think, well, it's implausible that we have these concepts that are innate. But what's what they often fail to recognize it's 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 also a problem in giving evolutionary ex explanation of how you could come to have those innate concepts. Um, how could there could be an evolutionary selection pressure for them when there's no construction from there's no slightly more primitive concept of object, slightly more primitive concept of um, whatever you think microwave oven. Um, so anyway, that's the problem. These are just the problems for the conceptual account, right? I'd like to hopefully get to the case of non-conceptual content. Um, right, so I've already said that. So I'm getting this uh, argument from Adrian Cousins, and he generalizes it to being a point not just about the phylogenetic um, trace, but also about development. If you want to give a developmental explanation, then within the individual. So ontogenetic 
ontogenetic stories also require something similar to this and a conceptualist again that's basically the point that just came out Fodor for instance cannot give an ontogenetic explanation for the acquisition of concepts he cannot give also a phylogenetic explanation for the evolution of concepts all right what's another problem with conceptual explanations again back to perception now well Suppose there are two subjects, and both of them are looking at an electron microscope, roughly from the same perspective, under the same lighting conditions, etc. But only one of them actually has the concept electron microscope. Well, intuitively, I think, there is something shared in the contents of experience of the two subjects. Even though there's a difference in their experience, certainly one is having an experience as of an electron microscope being in front of them, and the other person isn't, it's a fact that, I mean, by hypothesis, uh, we've supposed that they don't know what an electron microscope is. So they might be having experience of an electron microscope, but it isn't an experience as of an electron microscope. It isn't an experience of an electron microscope qua electron microscope. So there are differences, but intuitively we think, it seems plausible to say, and it seems to be backed up by uh, certain kinds of... Um, uh, empirical studies based on you know similarities in their behavior there is something shared in their experience so they see roughly a kind of metallic looking-ish thing with a certain kind of shades of gray and certain kinds of surfaces that afford sitting and not um, those um, those aspects of their experience are in common but by hypothesis they have a conceptual difference so how are we going to capture this commonality in the experiences of the two subjects. It doesn't look like you can have it be a matter of the sameness of conceptual content. For you know, what concepts could they be? Now you might think, well, look, just use the concepts that you mentioned, Ron. You talked about metallic and gray and sitting and things like that. So why not say that the common co content of their experience is a conceptual content specified with those terms, gray, metallic, sitting. Well, <clears throat> that can't be right because I could just raise this example for those concepts. So there's, you have two subjects both looking at a gray thing, only one has a concept gray and the other one doesn't. Or both of them are looking at a metallic thing and one of them has a concept metallic and the other one doesn't. So when I said, I kind of gestured towards what the common aspects of their experience are, I use these concepts, but I don't really, I didn't really mean to commit myself to saying, well, they see it as metallic or they see it as gray. So what we've got here again, this is like uh, the point that was made concerning the found uh, non-circularity requirements in the theory of perception. We've got, we want to understand the world being presented to the subjects in some way, but not as metallic, not as gray, not in a way that requires them to possess those concepts, because it looks like subjects can have similar experiences even if they don't possess the concepts that we would use in characterizing those experiences. So there's a, a problem there. If there's something in common between in, in the experience, perceptual experience of somebody who has a concept and somebody who doesn't, then it looks like it cannot be a conceptual commonality. What about animals and infants? Well, intuitively, they've got minds, right? We're not like, uh, at least some interpretations of Descartes would say that he thought animals didn't have minds. That's questionable, but we're not like that. We don't think 
At least a lot of us don't think that animals are just machines with nothing going on inside, and, si and certainly the, we believe that about infants. And yet, the conceptualist is under pressure to, um, to deny minds to them if the conceptualist thinks that the mind is whatever can be revealed by conceptual content or can be captured through conceptual content. Because intuitively, the, also, animals and infants don't have um, concepts, at least. Um, you might think, well, maybe they don't have our concepts. Maybe they have their own uh, primitive concepts. But as soon as you're talking about a more primitive concept, um, maybe you're already beginning to grant the non-conceptualist what uh, he or she wants. Um, so animals and infants don't seem to, well, <clears throat> it looks unlikely that their, their content constituents are going to meet the articulability constraint. That's one reason to think that they lack concepts. Um, infants before the stage of object permanence fail to meet recombinability. They can know what it would be for the toy to be graspable in some sense, but if the toy uh, say if, they, if their mother's behind them and they hear their mother, they don't necessarily know what it would be for their mother to be graspable in that situation because maybe they can only conceive of something being graspable if it's being visually perceived in front of them. So they fail to recombine, even though according to the generality constraint, if you're capable of thinking graspable of the toy and um, uh, making a sound of mother, then you should be able to think um, making us uh, graspable of mother um, because you can recombine all these uh, content constituents. But there's reason to believe that infants can't uh, entertain thoughts like that. They can't, um, uh, under certain conditions, they cannot have certain kinds of thoughts about objects that they're not, say, visually aware of, even though they could have thoughts about things that they are visually aware of. Um, also, it looks unlikely that you the deployment criterion is met. Um, if they do ha have any content, which they I'm saying they do, it looks like it's pretty passive in the sense that they uh, their senses deliver to them some way that the world is, but they can't. Um, as an exercise of their own spontaneity to achieve their own ends, they cannot deploy these ways of thinking of the world and use them in, in um, uh, yeah, to achieve their goals, in aid of their goals. Rather, they're just kind of, here's the given, here's the way the world is, deal with it. Rather than, um, now what if the world were this way? Would I, what could I, what could I do then? Or what if the world were that way? So since they aren't responsible for the, the, these content constituents being present or not in their experience, that is, they're not deploying them, they're also not really rationally, there's no question of rational justification for them. There's no need for a justification. The question of justification doesn't really apply. So that's another way in which conceptual content just seems to be the wrong kind of tool. So. If all that is right, then it looks like we need to do some, something's wrong. If we want to have a, a content-based cognitive science, then um, one way to respond to these problems is to say, well, let's get rid of, um, well, we could either get rid of uh, 
in content-based cognitive science or an intentional cognitive science, or we could just decide to get rid of uh, uh, concepts. I think uh, you don't even have to be that. So I think you don't have to. Uh, you undermine the eliminativist, the sweeping eliminativist argument if you can come up with an alternative to concepts that don't face these problems. But I think even then, uh, being a conceptual eliminativist might go too far. So somebody who advocates non-conceptual content is not necessarily advocating that uh, you should. There's no such thing as there are no such thing as concepts, and you need to get rid of conceptual content. It just needs maybe. Uh, that, that maybe it's the case that conceptual content needs to be augmented with non-conceptual content, and both together can explain everything in the um, and overcome the limitations of conceptual content, and yet retain its strengths. So the proposed alternative is still use content-based explanations, maybe even use conceptual content-based explanations sometimes, but also use non-conceptual content-based explanations. The constituents of these non-conceptual contents will be proto-concepts. They will be constituents that don't necessarily meet, or that, that don't meet all four of those conditions. So what do we mean by non-conceptual content? Well, a common definition you'll find, for instance, in that Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy paper that I linked to, but just about everywhere, is something like this. Um, a content is non-conceptual if that content N is canonically specified in terms of some set of concepts, but that it's possible for a subject to be in that contentful state without possessing all of the concepts that are used to specify it. So roughly, a content is non-conceptual if the specification of it uses concepts that a subject need not have in order to be in that contentful state. And uh, yeah, if it's puzzling, that's a puzzling definition for you, don't, um, that's not your fault. Um, I think it's a really bad definition. It's a confusing definition, and uh, it's not just a matter of clarity. I think this, it just misunderstands the nature of the explanatory enterprise here. Um, I, so I've got some criticisms of this, um, this definition. Uh, it assumes that there is this unique canonical specification of each content. Um, I'm not really convinced that that's true for content in general. Maybe it's true for conceptual content, but these people are supposedly advocating non-conceptual content. And once you generalize the notion, maybe there isn't a notion of a unique canonical specification. I think it gets things backwards. It tries to tell you what non-conceptual content is in terms of what a canonical specification of it is. And I would say, no, what we need to do is get clear of what non-conceptual content is first, and then we'll know what counts as a canonical or not a canonical specification of it. That's that also requires you to drop this principle I talked about at the beginning of the first lecture, the possession principle. The possession principle, just to remind you, is this, um, I think it's just a constraint on what we mean by, what we mean by a constituent of content. A const uh, the possession principle says that for you to be in states with a particular content, you have to possess each of the constituents of that content. So once again, for you to be in a state with particular content, you have to possess the constituents. And I think that holds true whether the content is conceptual or non-conceptual. These non-conceptualists non who use this standard definition have to say that a subject can be in a state of, um, <clears throat> can be a state in a state with a particular non-conceptual content, and that non-conceptual content has these particular concepts 
as part of its structure, and yet the subject doesn't have to possess those concepts to be in that state. So like uh, maybe they would say, there's a non-conceptual content, the table looks red. And they'd say, well, the concept red and the concept table somehow feature in that content, but the subject doesn't actually have to possess the concept red or the concept table. And I'd say that's just a contradiction. If the subject doesn't really have to possess those concepts to have that content, then it's not really those concepts that are the, the constituents of something else, something less than a concept. So I don't want to spend too much time criticizing the standard definition, um, just to let you know that if you're going to follow this up on your own, that that standard definition is the dominant one. It's out there, but um, I, I'm going to propose one a, a definition that's simpler. I think you'll find it simpler. Also, it assumes but does not explicate a prior notion of concept. Now, that's what I've done so far on Monday and today, is spend a lot of time explicating the notion of concept so that you can be clear about what non-conceptual content is. But usually when people present that um, standard definition, they don't have a careful analysis of what a conceptual content is. So if you already do have a careful analysis of what conceptual content is, which I hope we do now, um, then you can use that to uh, come up with a clearer, simpler notion of what non-conceptual content is. So I just say non-conceptual content is content that has at least one, that has, sorry, just leave out at least, that has one or more constituents that is a proto-concept. And what do I mean by a proto-concept? It's just a content constituent that does not meet all of those uh, conceptual criteria of articulability, deployability, rationality. So, for instance, non-conceptual content would be, <coughs> one way to fail to be conceptual is for the content to be passive perceptual content. That is kind of the given for a subject. The subject isn't really responsible for it, hasn't participated in generating this content in like uh, the kinds of ways that Jens was talking about yesterday between subjects. If it's not under the endogenous control of the subject, that would be a way of a content not being deployable. What about not being rational? Well, if you aren't deploying it, then in some sense it's a content that, um, for which the notion of justification or responsibility doesn't arise. Um, if it's content that is not arbitrarily recombinable, unlike linguistic content, then it will fail to be conceptual and also thereby it will not be expressible via language. So for instance, it won't be able, it won't meet the articulability constraint. So if you have contents that aren't articulable or aren't recombinable or don't have a standing need to be justified or cannot be arbitrarily deployed by the subject to achieve their ends, that would be a sign that you've got content that is, whose constituents are proto-concepts and that's what it means for it there to be non-conceptual content. Yeah, good. I like this a lot better, but I have one oh, yeah, fine. big hesitation. I don't like linguistic definitions. Yeah, that's like a positive <laughs> characterization right. of what's going on. Right, so that's, that's say, that's something that, for instance, Adrian Cousins, who tried to develop uh, the theory of non-conceptual content 20 years ago, he was very aware of this. He did not want to have the primary notion of conceptual content be a contrastive negative notion. And so he spent time trying to uh, give a more positive characterization. But I think there are reasons why, I, I think normally that is desirable, but I think there are some really kind of deep philosophical reasons why this, in this case, that's not gonna be possible. And I think he's, 
his attempts to do it are an illustration of why it's impossible. It has something to do with the fact that we begin the philosophical discourse within language and within concepts. And so because of that, we have to, at least the way we do philosophy and, and do science and, and well, the way we normally think that we do it, we have to start there, and if there's anything that we want to talk about that isn't within that space of the linguistic and the conceptual, then we've got to somehow subtract it from. It's tr I think the phenomenologists were right in a sense. That really, um, there's something more primitive. I don't know. Well, forget about the phenomenologists, but it, it's probably the case that this is the more fundamental case, and the conceptual linguistic case is derived from that in some way, constructed from that. But with since we're using language and concepts, we can't, it's really hard to get at that stuff. I can gesture towards your experience and say that kind of content is what I mean. And sometimes people do that. For instance, in consciousness studies, people say, well, I'm not going to give you a definition of consciousness. I just mean, you know, you should just look at, introspect right now and see how things are to you right now. And that's what I mean. So they try to give this ostensive definition. You could do that for non-conceptual content. But there are problems with extensive definitions like the informal definitions like that. They're very subjective, and it's, it's hard to get a theory of them going. Whereas here, I'm deciding to be strong on, and rigorous on theory, but it means I have to have pay the price of having a contrastive notion. Um, so, he, so when you try to give a, well, what's an example of trying to give a positive characterization? Um, well, even his, positive, his, his attempts, Cousins' attempts at a positive characterization still had some contrastive elements. like. He'd say uh, it was. It's a notion. It's a way of taking the world to be. Um, well, here's a contrastive notion that doesn't impose the subject-object distinction. Okay, that's still contrastive. How about this one? Um, it's a kind way of taking the world to be where the norms are everyday, mundane norms, as opposed to. Now I'm going to give the contrastive theoretical. Um, theoretical norms or norms from the theory of, of rationality or something like that. So, so it's really hard to, to do this. Uh, I have a suggestion for how you get the okay. definition. I was at a um, conference with some nuclear physicists a few weeks ago. We were discussing exactly this. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. And so one suggestion was to use a guy called Parker Rhodes. Okay. Ever heard of him? No. He was in the PCBC Cambridge. Contrasted that with it's contrast. I mean, he contrasted but it with it, but there's still a, a notion that you can understand without having to understand predicate subject form, which is what I mentioned during your talk: the feature placing sentences. So instead of taking um, uh, John is happy as your paradigmatic case of content, if you took it's raining as your paradigmatic case of content, 
then you could say that just puts a condition on the world but doesn't do so by introducing an object that is going to have a property. It's just saying there is something, there is a way the world is or a way the world seems to be and it doesn't involve objects and properties yet. It just involves the occurrence of features or the, and it doesn't, it doesn't commit you to where is it raining? Is it raining right, you know, how far away from here is it? It's just saying it's raining. So if that's your positive fundamental notion, then you could say the, it's, it's plausible that the, the, the best way to analyze those sentences is in terms of non-conceptual content. It's not introducing a subject and object. But, but so, so I, I understand. Uh, I, I think you're right that this is something that we should move towards. But this maybe this ne negative contrastive approach will help us get there. And then it can be eventually kicked away once we get there. Yeah. I think it's very interesting to notice that these guys who are in physics and yeah, that's, maths, a, that's really they're nice. actually looking, you know, how can we characterize the world sort of independently of Big Bang, you know? Yeah. What is have you ever heard of a guy called David Bohm? Yes, yeah, of course you have. Yeah, it's those guys, right? <laughs> so they're doing the intricate order, explicit order. They wonder how can we talk about the intricate order? Yeah. That's it. I yeah. mean that's yeah. a you know, it's Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let me just. Um, no, I think that's a good point. Um, question: Just to get this uh, operational for me, uh, can you can you uh, can you? Uh, what about a proof concept that has none of those those four? Is that conceivable? Right. So what's left? So one debate between uh, myself and a former DPhil student of mine. He's he's recently got his uh, DPhil his PhD. Um, that's Mike Beaton, and he's a conceptualist, or thinks he's a conceptualist, um, is that, uh, <laughs> well, he, he basically says, uh, you, I say, well, if you're a conceptualist, what about all these arguments I just gave, animals, infants, perception? He goes, well, yeah, you're right, uh, the con content doesn't have to be articulable. Yeah, you're right, content doesn't have to arbitrarily recombine. So, okay, well, then you're a non-conceptualist. It's just a terminological dispute you're here. And he says, well, no, the reason why I think I'm a conceptualist, the reason why I continue to call myself a conceptualist, is that you're right, Ron, that there's matter of degrees here. So the extreme conceptualist is incorrect in saying that only when these things are maximally achieved do you have any content at all. But the reason why he still likes to call himself a conceptualist is he says the degree to which these things are reached is the degree to which there's content present at all. Yeah. Right? Now, that's sort of the frontier of the debate. So there's an issue there. Is it the case that content consists in these being achieved to some degree? I suspect not. I don't think so. I think that there's something more fundamental, maybe, that Jens was talking about, about a world being presented, uh, that a world being made, taken to be a particular way. And these are just interesting, uh, you know, the, the, the development of these different variables or different aspects yield a very special case. But I don't think they're, these are fundamental in the sense that if you don't have these, if, if these are minimal, um, then you don't have content at all. I don't think the, the presence of experience, I don't think, no, I don't, okay, let me put it this way. I don't think your experience is getting less and less the less conceptual it's getting. I think it's just as much experience. I think animals and infants are experiencing the world, and it's not like they're experiencing the world less. They have the le a less conceptual uh, experience of the world, perhaps, but I don't think that, I don't think somehow they're getting, it's getting darker and darker within as, the, as, as you go back in time, right? So anyway, that, I don't have an argument for that. So let's look at the criticism. So how much time do I have? 
any time. Well, I think that's the problem is that um, we're we're discussing things that maybe I I would have. Um, I mean, some some of these points are I wouldn't have got to, but I I, I like I, yes, I haven't basically gone over um, how non-cipher content can solve these problems. I'd like to do that before I take any more questions. I'll try to be quick. I know um, that doesn't help in some some ways, but um, I think we've done enough groundwork now that I can move quickly on these slides. Um, so what about the fineness of grain problems? Well, if you acknowledge the presence of non-conceptual content, then you can employ a notion of content that's not bounded by the co concepts or color terms that a subject possesses. And that um, will allow you to do justice to um, the uh, content of experiences like these. And that also will help explain why our experience seems to be at least partly ineffable um, contra the articular, articulability criterion. So you, you can just have the full experience rather than some conceptualized um, highlights of it. What about the Müller-Dyer illusion? Well, non-conceptual content, forget need not, is not obliged to be rationally revised as per criterion three. So there is no problem with supposing that your perception has uh, one non-conceptual content that's at odds with your conceptual belief that state can persist even after you are told and actually believe a content that you know that, that conflicts with your perceptual content. So it's 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 the given that's foisted upon you, um, and so you're not responsible. Not only are you not responsible for revising it, you really can't revise it arbitrarily. It's kind of the way the world is presented to you. It's not um, the way that you are actively judging the world to be. Um, what about the non-circularity requirements? I think this is, it's obvious now that you can give an account of what it is for a subject to possess the concept red in terms of a non-conceptual way that the world seems to be. If the non, if the, if you can give account, if you can give possession conditions for perceptual concepts in terms of the way subjects tend to apply that concept under, um, in, in experiences that are characterized non-conceptually, you won't be um, being circular. You'll be able to uh, ground out your account uh, of what it is to possess a, a concept in a yeah, non-circular way. So Peacock says, perceptual states with non-conceptual content make general concepts available to a thinker by providing the canonical non-inferential basis for the application of these concepts to things given any experience. And he goes on. The non-conceptual contents that make available these various perceptual-based <laughs> conceptual contents cannot, however, be identified with any of the conceptual contents that they make available, and that's good because that would have been uh, would mean that it's circular. Um, and since they're not concepts, they don't have conceptual constituents; rather, they're proto-concepts. You don't need to give a justification of their use. You do need, need to give an account of when does an experience have a certain non-conceptual content or not. But that will be a matter of concept application and won't require you to give a, a, just, a, a justification. What about evolution? Well, this should be obvious. We kind of got into this discussion when I was presenting the, the case against the conceptual explanation. Once you recognize the existence of contents that do not meet the correct criteria, at least not fully, that, permit, that permits the notion of contents that approximate those criteria to varying degrees. So for instance, you could talk about the degree to which 
contents arbitrarily recombine. You could talk about, well, at this stage, the infant can recombine its thought of the toy with these other predicates, even though it can't recombine it, or sorry, yeah, with, with, with all of the predicates of objects that it has. And you can talk about certain learning experiences or certain learning procedures increase that recombinability. And so you can talk about development, or you can talk about um, uh, uh, phylogenetic uh, development as well. So it permits, in theory, the construction of a sequence of content constituents where each is more primitive than its successor. So you could have like arbitrary recombinability here, but slightly less than arbitrarily recombinability here, and so on. And then you could give an evolutionary explanation for, um, for the latter. And so for learning and development. And I already talked about avoiding nativism. And it also helps you explain how you can change from one conceptual way of looking at the world to another conceptual way of looking at the world. By hypothesis, well, it, the conceptualist cannot really explain how, in, at least in some cases, how you might change from a con one conceptual way of looking at the world to a, con a different conceptual way of looking at the world. Because by hypothesis, there will always be there have that will have to involve some jumps between concepts, and they can't explain that process. So the non-conceptualist might be able to, if you think of these conceptual these different conceptualizations as islands above the surface of the water, the non-conceptualist <coughs> might be able to trace the move from one island to the other below the kind of what we might call the conceptual surface, below the articulable conceptual surface. The, the, the sub-conceptual um, <coughs> negotiated micro-stages in moving from one of these concept conceptual schemes to another, whereas the conceptualist can't, can't talk about that by hypothesis. What about the commonalities in, in the perceptions of those who have a concept and those who don't? Well, clearly now we can say that they have the same non-conceptual content and that doesn't commit us to saying that they have the same set of concepts. They might differ in their concepts and yet still have the same non-conceptual content. What about animals and infants? Well, um, now we can make sense of infant minds, animal minds, because we can, um, <clears throat> the infraverbal status of animals and infants will not pose a difficulty for contents that don't respect the articulability constraint. The uh, inability of the infant to arbitrarily recombine its predicate is graspable, say, with all of its objects, doesn't preclude it from being ascribed proto-concepts of the uh, proto-concept of the toy. Um, Non-conceptual content doesn't have to be actively deployable. Matter of fact, it typically isn't. It's typically kind of the perceptual given. Um, so therefore, um, that fits well with the largely passive um, contents involved in animal and infant cognition. And we don't have to worry about um, this uh, justification as well. Um, so what are the challenges for using non-conceptual content? I won't be able to go into these. I've run out of time. But as I said, one big problem is the problem of specification. That is, conceptual content is really handy. Maybe the reason why it was focused on for so long is that it's really easy to specify it. I can specify uh, the, con the content of Jens's conceptual belief by just using some English, I could say, Jens believes that today is Wednesday. And the content of that sentence captures perfectly, let us suppose, 
the content of Jens's belief. But if these contents, non-conceptual contents, are not articulable, then I can't come up with a sentence that has the very same content as the infant's uh, way of thinking of the toy or, or belief about the toy. So I've got to have some other way of specifying them. Um, I'll give a quick example of some of the work that Joel and I did in doing that. There are some other problems that I can't go into, conceptual problems, empirical problems. Um, but let me just give you a quick uh, demonstration of rather than using sentences, why not use some kind of, um, go back to the beginning, some kind of, oh, that goes backwards, some kind of diagram, or in this case, movie. Um, what we're doing here is trying to specify the changing uh, visual, uh, non-conceptual content of visual experience that a particular robotic system is modeling. I didn't say have, the robot doesn't have any experience, but it's modeling a particular kind of visual experience. And this uh, movie here is specifying the changing uh, content that it's modeling, um, that the robot is modeling. And uh, I can't go into details about how to interpret this diagram, but the point is I'm not using language, I'm using a diagram. And the state of the diagram at any one time tells you, as another cognitive science theorist, um, what the expectational state of this robot is. And according to the theory that uh, we were using for the purpose of this work, the expectational state determines the non-conceptual content of visual experience. So by, by giving you the facts here, presenting them in, a, in an intuitive way, instead of giving a big list of the expectational state in terms of numbers and arrows and values, instead of giving you a list that intuitive, doesn't make any much intuitive sense to you, I let you use your own visual system to see the expectational state of this robot, and you can therefore come to understand something about um, what the way the world seems to it. And so this is just to get, don't expect you to understand all that, but just give you a flavor of how radical we're going to have to be in order to uh, solve this problem of specification. And I'll end on, on, on one comment about that. I think this problem of specification really makes the debate between the conceptualist, it gives the debate between the conceptualist and the non-conceptualist bite. It gives it relevance. As I was suggesting when I mentioned my uh, former student, Mike Beaton, you can often wonder whether the debate between the conceptualist and the non-conceptualist is merely terminological. Like, well, what are we going to call concepts? Are we going to call concepts only the things that are at this top level of deployability, articulability? Or are we going to call concepts any constituent of a content? And it might seem that arguing for non-conceptual content just seems to be arguing about whether we're going to use concepts to only refer to this stuff down here or all this stuff here. So it looks like it's purely a terminological debate. This point shows that there is an issue here that is substantive that really the non-conceptual non-conceptualists and conceptualists should be really arguing about. So I would, you could reframe the debate this way. Can we, in, a, in cognitive science, get at all the contents we need, can we specify all the contents we need to specify in order to explain subjects' mental lives solely by using that clauses? If you think we can, then you're a conceptualist and we don't really need to radically change the way we do things now. We can just pretty much proceed, just come up with more and more that clauses. If, however, the kinds of considerations 
that I've, the kinds of limitations of that approach that I've mentioned, if they persuade you that there's a problem here, you might think that that clauses are doomed. We need some other way of specifying the contents of experience, the contents of minds, other than just using that, the linguistically structured that clauses. I would say if you agree with that, then really you're a non-conceptualist. It doesn't matter where, where you decide to apply the term concept or not. It's the, 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 the substance of the debate is in whether you think we need to radically change the way that we specify the contents of the, the mind and experience. If, if you think everything's okay now, then you're, you're basically what I would call a conceptualist. If you think when there needs to be something, a, a different approach to specification, then in effect you're a non-conceptualist whether you realize it or not. So I'll just uh, end with that. Thanks. Thank you.